week of our series, Stand Up. And over the next four weeks, we're kind of, we have this application that's mostly to men, but of course it's also to women. And I'm specifically challenging the men to stand up and be the men that God has called us to be. And we're kind of using this metaphor of the lazy boy chair, that there are no lazy girl recliners, there are lazy boy recliners. And we're kind of using that metaphor. Somebody kind of implied, well, Dennis, are you getting rid of your lazy boy? No, it's a metaphor. I'm not getting rid of mine, but it's a metaphor that we, we, we need to stand up. We need to, to get out of the recliner, so to speak, and be the men that God has called us to be. You know, I think we're kind of challenged to live out our masculinity in a way that honors God, but yet it's confusing in a world where a lot of times masculinity is referred to as toxic. And there's obviously, like we talked about last week, an element of our culture that would just assume we all become one unisex culture and do away with the gender differences. So what I'm doing is calling us out, men, to live out our masculinity in a way that honors God, but also honors women. And that can be confusing sometimes. I just want to share two kind of contrasting examples that point out that confusion. Years ago when I was in college, the cafeteria was closed on Sunday night. You couldn't get supper on Sunday night. And most of us went to church. And so what would happen is after church, we would just all get in these big groups and we would go somewhere and eat. So one Sunday evening after church, we were doing just that, and we were going to drive to the Wendy's that was about five minutes away. And you know how it goes. Everybody's kind of out in the parking lot, and everybody's trying to figure out who they're going to ride with. And so I had two buddies. They were going to ride with me in my 1971 Ford Green Pinto. But uh, anyway, and so everybody was climbing into cars, and then there was this one lady, and of course we all knew each other, and it, this is not a boyfriend-girlfriend thing, so please remember that as I tell the story. She was just kind of looking for a place. She was going to ride with some friends of hers, and the car was full. And one of my buddies says, hey, you can ride with us. And so my two friends, they pile in the back seat, and I pile into the driver's seat. And I get ready to start the car, and I notice that she's still standing outside the car by the passenger door. And she has her arms folded. I'm like... What's the deal here? Did I forget to unlock the door? So I looked over and up the door was unlocked and she's just standing there and I'm going, what's going on with her? And uh, so I get out of the car and I'm kind of leaning over the top of the roof of the car and I'm like, what's the matter? She goes, I'll never forget this. She goes, I'm a lady and I expect one of you gentlemen to treat me as such. Basically, she was saying, I expect to be treated like a young lady, and I expect one of you guys to open the door. I'll never forget that. Fast forward 25 years-ish later. I'm on vacation in Florida, and I'm at a restaurant. And as I'm getting, well, I'm getting ready to go into a restaurant, and as I'm getting to the door, there's a lady, probably late 20s, a young lady, who's going to arrive at the door about the same time that I do. And I do unconsciously 
what I've been raised to do and have done thousands, if not tens of thousands of times. I grab the door and I step back and I hold it open for her. And as she approaches the door, I can tell I've annoyed her. I mean, that's the look that she gives me. And she kind of pushes the door open a little bit further with her hand and says, I can open my own door. And, you know, you're just so taken back. At least those of us, I think, in the South will be kind of taken back. You know, I didn't know what to say. I'm sorry. I'm sorry for holding the door open for you, right? I mean, it just totally caught me off guard. So she goes on into the restaurant, and I go into the restaurant, and I'll be honest with you, I was kind of ticked. I mean, the flesh starts working, you, you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, so I start thinking, you know, of ways that, you know, I guess there's a part of me that likes to uh, offend people that are easily offended. I don't know if it's a hobby or whatever it is. Annoy people that like to be easily annoyed, that kind of thing. So I'm sitting there, and of course the family's there, but my mind's not on my family. I'm like, back off. Like, I can't believe I apologize. That's what I was thinking first. Why did I apologize to her? That was just rude on her part. So then I start thinking, well, what can I do? I thought, well, I could wait till she finishes her meal and make sure that I leave at the same time she does and hold the door open again for her. That ticked her off, right? Or I thought maybe... Maybe I'll just wait till I can catch her with a drink in her hands and walk by and bump her chair real hard so that she spills it and not say I'm sorry. Or then I thought, well, remember, this is the flesh working. This is not what you should be doing or thinking about. But then I thought, well, maybe I could buy her meal, some unknown male buying her meal. I'm sure that would not go over well with her. In the end, I didn't do anything. God convicted me, but I tell you what, I was just ticked off. And so I was thinking about those stories this, this last week, and I thought, what kind of world is it that, what kind of messed up world is it that people get offended and that you're apologizing for holding doors open? And sometimes it's just confusing to know how to live out that masculinity that God has given us. But I really believe that God wants men to be masculine. That's the way he created us. And I believe most women want men to be masculine too. And what we need to do, guys, is learn how to live out that masculinity with our God-given purpose. And I'm not talking about toxic masculinity. And I'm not talking about some of the things that pass as masculinity when men just want to dominate over women. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about living out how God created us according to his purpose and the purpose that he has designed each of us with. So we're in the second week of this. Last week we talked about courage. We're going to talk a little bit more about courage today. But we're also going to talk about commitment. And today we're going to go over to the book Old Testament again, and we're going to look at Joshua. Joshua is kind of this prototype of, of what masculinity should look like when you combine it, combine it with a man's purpose. Last week we looked at Adam, and we looked at the passivity of Adam, this guy that, that just sat back and he watched and he didn't say anything and he didn't do anything when Satan was trying to uh, 
or succeeded in getting his wife to sin by eating the, the, the fruit of the tree of good and evil. So that was Adam. Not what we want to be. But he's kind of a stereotype for what a lot of men struggle with. Not wanting to say anything or not do anything. But today we're going to look at Joshua. We're going to kind of start over in the book of Joshua chapter 1, but we're going to go back a little bit before that. And we're going to kind of wrap up in Joshua chapter 24. But I need to give you some context of what is happening in Joshua chapter 1. You may remember, you know, if you're a regular attender of church or Sunday school or whatever, that originally the Israelites were slaves in Egypt. And Moses took them out of that slavery, and God had told them that they would have a promised land. And he had given them that promised land. And so that they come to the promised land so after they had left Egypt, that land that had been promised to Abraham and the Israelites. And when they got there, they sent 12 spies, they were called, who represented the 12 different tribes of Israel. You're going to go in the land and kind of do a reconnaissance effort, so to speak. Go in the land, see what's there, see who's there, that kind of thing. So these 12 spies, they go into the land, and they scope it out. And then they come back, and they report back to Moses and the people what they found. And the 12 guys all agree on this. Yeah, this land is wonderful. This land is beautiful. Scripture says it's a land filled with milk and honey. Scripture says that they reported that the, the bunches of grapes were so big that it took two men to carry them. They put them on a pole between them to carry these, these bunches of grapes that are like five feet long. Just, this, this just is a great land, they report back. This, this, is, this is great. But ten of the twelve, they come back and they are filled with fear. They know this is the land. They recognize that this is what God wants. But this is what they say to the people. Deuteronomy chapter 1 verse 20. The people of the land are taller and more powerful than we are. Their towns are large with walls rising into the sky. We even saw giants there. And so they tell this report. And it spooks a lot of the people there. And the people are filled with fear. But there are two of the twelve that come back. Joshua and Caleb. And they believe God's promise. And they are not scared. And they believe in God's power. And they acknowledge that it won't be easy and the challenge will be difficult. But they believe nothing is too difficult for God. And so in Numbers chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, they say to the people, The Lord will give us this land. Do not be afraid. The Lord is with us. So what do we have here? We have 12 people. They all saw the same thing. They all believe that the land is for them, that it's beautiful, that it's good. But 10 of them are overwhelmed with fear, and they don't want to do it. They don't want to have anything to do with it. They want to run away. They're afraid. What are they afraid of? I think they're afraid of failure. What if we try and we don't succeed? They're afraid that they're not strong enough. The people are more powerful than we are. They're afraid they don't have what it takes. And these fears drive them to passivity. 
Have you ever been to a zoo and really looked at the African lions? Little town I grew up in in West Texas, but the size of the town really has a pretty good zoo. They always had African lions there. A male lion can weigh up to 500 pounds. And have you ever noticed the size of their paws? I mean, they're huge. Those paws are big enough and those animals are large enough and powerful enough to make you wonder sometimes if those bars that they're behind would really keep them back if they decided that, that you were going to be their lunch. I mean, you just think that sometimes. These incredible beasts. No wonder they're called King of the Beast, Panthera Leo. I mean, they're just huge. You look at them in a zoo and you think they ought to be out on the savanna somewhere. Ruling their prides and instilling fear in every zebra and giraffe or, or other animal that might find itself on their lunch menu. But instead, they spend their time behind bars. They're not great hunters. They're fed through little metal plates where a zookeeper will shove food at them. Instead of walking through the tall grasses with their heads held high, and every other animal running for cover, they mostly just sit around. And you can just see it in their eyes. They're weary with a fatigue that comes from sheer boredom. They take shallow breaths, and they do little more than roll from side to side. After years of lying in a cage, a lion no longer believes he's a lion. I think there's a lot of men today that no longer believe that they're men. A man is born with a warrior spirit. That's the way God designs men. Men were born for adventure. They were born to be courageous. God has wired them to champion a lady's heart. God has wired us to fight for injustice. But a lot of times you wouldn't realize that by looking at what parades around as manhood today. So why is it that when many men look into their hearts, the courageous spirit is not there? I would say that there are a lot of men who are lazy boys, not because they're necessarily lazy, but because they are afraid. <coughs> Guys, sometimes we have trouble recognizing fears or acknowledging our fears. Maybe we don't even see them as fears. But yet we wonder why so many men are angry all the time. Maybe you're one of those. Or why you're, you're not motivated or you're frustrated. It's because of fear. We don't see it as fear, but we're afraid of failure. Afraid of not being strong enough. Afraid of not having what it takes. And it keeps us in the lazy boy. And instead of being the lions on the savanna, we are men and lazy boys. Not Joshua. Not Caleb. They have faith. They put their confidence not in their own power, but in God's power. And God sends the people away who are too scared and too afraid and who don't think they have what it takes. And for 40 years, 
Israel wanders around. And it's not because it took 40 years to get to the promised land. It's not like that. It's because God was waiting for everybody to die that was too afraid to go into the promised land. And those that were born after they started the 40-year wandering, they would go in with Joshua and Caleb and their families. And I would just say to all of us, men and women, don't let fear write your story. Those people that wandered around for 40 years in the wilderness, fear wrote their story. There are plenty of us who will let fear of failure keep us from doing what God wants us to do. Or it'll keep you for, from applying for that job. Or taking that step of faith. There are plenty of us who will let fear of rejection keep us from a relationship. Or plenty of us who worry too much about what other people think to do what God is calling us to do. Or people that are afraid of a fear of commitment, so they always keep their relationships at the level one, nice and safe. Don't be like the ones that wandered in the wilderness. Don't let fear write your story. The twelve go in, ten come back, and they're filled with fear. And they wander around. Don't let your life be about regrets. I read an interesting article. It's from a book called If Only. It's written by Neil Rose. And in it, he talks about regrets. And he says there's basically only two types of regrets. He said there are those regrets that we have because we did something and then we regretted it later. And then he said there are those kinds of regrets where you didn't do something and you regret it. And this is what's interesting about his research. He says regrets of action tend to be short-lived, depending on the severity of it. We regret it. The regret lives with us for a while, but eventually we move on. But he says the regrets of inaction have ways of following us for a long time and sometimes compound the regret. Like the longer we go and the further we are from it, the more we look back and the more we regret it. And that's why oftentimes you'll talk to people that, that are much more advanced in their years. And, and they talk to you about the regrets. And if you listen, they'll tell you about something they didn't do or didn't say. And oftentimes the reason we don't or we don't say is because we are afraid. Well, Joshua and Caleb, they're, they're dependent on God. So he's probably 35 or 40 years old when... He originally went in as a spy. So 40 years go by. So now he's 80, 85 years old. And as we approach Joshua chapter 1, Moses has died. Joshua's now in charge. And so we're going to pick it up right there. Joshua chapter 1, verse 2. God says to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now rise up. So there it is, what we've been talking about. Stand up, rise up, go over the Jordan, you and all these people, into the land which I give unto them, to the children of Israel. So God says to Joshua, stand up, rise up. And then he immediately gives him a task, which I don't think we always understand is kind of an overwhelming task. He says, cross the Jordan. 
And I think in our minds, a lot of times we miss that. We think, oh, the Jordan's this little Lehigh River, and you just walk across it, it's no big deal. Well, the Jordan River's at flood stage. And I don't know how, what exactly that looked like, but it had to be pretty serious. You seen the pictures of Southeast Texas lately? And I'm not saying it was that big, but if it was even close to that, instantly, he gives them this rise up and cross the children. It's immediately going to be a challenging assignment. So here's the first thing we noticed this morning about Joseph, Joshua. We noticed first that God calls Joshua to a life of courage. Immediately, Joshua finds himself in a place where the rising up or the standing up meant stepping into something that was unsafe, unmanageable, and unpredictable. That's part of the standing up a lot of times. You know what the recliner is? It's safe. It's manageable. It's predictable. But when you stand up, guys, oftentimes we're rising up and standing up to something that is unsafe, unpredictable, and unmanageable. A lot of times that's how you know that you're standing up because then you have to be dependent on God's strength and God's power. Joshua fully understood that. He had watched Moses. And he had watched Moses' relationship with God. And he had watched how Moses depended on God's power and God's help. We're not called to just stand up on our own. We're called to depend on God to do that. I think about what Joshua observed in Exodus chapter 17. Joshua is the the, the military commander, so he's in charge of the troops, and he's, he's leading the fight. And if you remember the story, as long as Moses kept his arms up in the air, the nation of Israel was victorious in the battle. But as soon as Moses' arms came down, the enemy would start winning the battle. And eventually they had to have somebody help Moses hold his arms up, and they were victorious in battle. Well, Joshua was the one that was commanding the troops, and, and he knew all of that stuff. And he knew that he needed help from God. So, men, the challenge is to stand up. But it's also to realize that sometimes you need to kneel down. And that the battle belongs to God. And we find our strength and our power from him. Look at verse 7. God goes on to challenge Joshua. Be strong and very courageous. And you see that theme throughout Joshua's life. Strength and courage. He tells him that all the time. It goes on. Be careful to obey the law my servant Moses gave you. Do not turn to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. You know what the way to be successful is? Obey God. Not go up on a tangent to the right or a tangent to the left, but commit yourself wholly to what God asks you to do. And that's the second thing we see this morning. Joshua is called to a life of commitment. Look at verses 8 and 9. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you? Here's those words again. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. 
And so God calls Joshua to be a man who commits himself, a man who is all in. And notice how God bookends it. Strength and courage. Strong and courageous. It's at both ends of the passage. Be strong and courageous. And the key to that commitment is found in confidence in God. Richard Wormbrand was a pastor in Romania behind the Iron Curtain. He was arrested in 1948 and he was tortured for 14 years because of his commitment to Christ, because of his refusal to waver in his faith. In his book, Tortured for Christ, he writes, it was strictly forbidden to preach to other prisoners. It was understood that whoever was caught doing this received a severe beating. Then he went on to say, so a number of us decided to pay the price for preaching. And they preached to the preacher. They preached to the prisoners anyway. He said, we accepted the terms. We accepted the deal. We preached and they beat us. We were happy preaching, he said. They were happy beating us. So everybody was happy. Strength and courage. Here's one of his quotes. Doing the work of God is dangerous. Doing nothing is more dangerous. You want to know what's really dangerous? It's just sitting in a lazy boy and watching life go by. God repeatedly tells Joshua, strong and courageous. And God challenges throughout Scripture men and women. He calls them to his purposes, and he challenges them. And then he speaks truth to them. And can I talk to the ladies for just a moment this morning? There's a lot of application here for the men, obviously. But I think there's some for the women. I'll go back to the, the Richard Wormbrand story. I told you the, the second part of it. I didn't tell you how he ended up in prison. This is how he ended up in prison. The Communist Party was putting incredible pressure on pastors and religious leaders to denounce Jesus Christ and to acknowledge communism. And there was a rally where one by one pastors and religious leaders were standing up to endorse communism, knowing that if they didn't, they'd go to jail, perhaps be executed. And so one by one, the pastors were getting up and rejecting the gospel, essentially. And it's almost Richard's turn when he's supposed to get up and endorse communism. And his wife is sitting next to him, and she says to her husband, They are spitting in the face of Jesus. Get up there and wash away the shame from the face of Jesus Christ. Richard said to her, If I do so, you'll lose your husband. And she replied, I don't wish to have a coward. For a husband. That's helping. Ladies, no one is asking you to be weak so that your husband can be strong. It takes an incredible amount of strength to be a helper. An incredible amount of strength. And I know men, a lot of times we're proud, we want to act like we don't need help, we won't acknowledge it, we won't be vulnerable, we won't say I'm struggling or I need, I need help. Is we need your help. We need your encouragement. If you're married, God has called you 
to help your husband. He's been called to help you too and serve you. We talked about that last May. And you know, I think there are probably three different ways that, that, you, that you could help. Let me just go through those. One way you could, might try to help us is you could indict us. There's certainly plenty of evidence against us. You could say, here's exhibit A, the remote control. Here's exhibit B, the list of all the things, all the hateful things that, that you said to me. Here's exhibit C, when you forgot our anniversary. Here's exhibit D, when you remembered our anniversary and you took me to Taco Bell. You can do that. You can just have all kinds of stuff. You can indict us. You know the truth. But here's another option. You can instruct us. You know us better than anybody. You know where we fall short. You know where we're not getting the job done. And maybe you think to yourself, well, if I don't teach him, who's going to teach him? His mama should have taught him, but she didn't. And so now it's my job. Somebody's got to show them. Here's the way you should have done it. This is what you should have done. You could pull out the red ink and write till your pen ran out. But my guess is you didn't get married because you want to be his teacher or his mama. Now, I can promise you he didn't marry you because he wanted you to be his mama. I guarantee that. Then there's a third option. This is the one that I would encourage you to go with. You could inspire. I'm not talking about fake praise or insincere flattery. I'm not saying that, but I'm talking about the kind of inspiration that Richard's wife gave him. You speak strength and courage into his heart. You remind him of the man that God has called him to be. You let him know that you believe that he can be that man. You notice when he makes the effort. You compliment him on the things that he is doing. You appreciate when he's trying and when he's struggling, you see it. And when there be a tendency to kick him while he's down, you help him up. You pray for him. So there you have it. You can indict. You could say, when are you going to get out of that chair? You're always in the chair. You can instruct. This is how you get out of the chair. This is what you need to be doing. Or you can inspire. I believe in you. I believe in the man that God has called you to be. We need you. Our family needs you. Now, here's what I run into sometimes. People will say, well, Pastor, you don't know him. And if I don't call him out, nobody else is going to do that. And you know, men, sometimes they're right. Somebody does. It's interesting to me that Joshua had Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. You see them together all the time. We don't know a whole lot about Joshua, I mean Caleb, but six times we're told that Caleb was a man who wholly followed the Lord. And the idea of wholly following is literally he closed the gap. So Caleb is described as a man who is just pursuing and chasing after God his entire life. And he was that accountability whatever, the encourager for Joshua. And you need a man like that, and you need to be a man like that for somebody else. And men, get this. If you have that man in your life, it takes tremendous pressure off your wife. She doesn't have to do it. 
When she realizes that there are other men who are doing that, it takes the pressure away. She knows that you're being challenged, and she knows, to use scripture terms, that you are being sharpened by other men. You know, each Wednesday night during the school year, we have a men's group that meets up above the room in the gym there, room 200. It's called Men's Fraternity. We meet there at 6.30 on Wednesday nights. There are 40 to 45 men who come. And I've discovered that they want to be challenged, and they want to be there for each other. Now, I'll be honest with you. Some of them have told me straight up, yeah, like I was voluntold to be here. Wasn't my choice, wasn't my idea, but. But I'm inviting you. Come join us. Be challenged. Connect with other men. Be encouraged by other men. Talk to the guys that come and they will tell you what goes on up there. There's not a whole lot of preaching. There's a whole lot of sharing. There's a whole lot of laughing. There is some biblical teaching, obviously, that goes on. But we laugh and we talk and we challenge each other. There are men in there that is, are as young as 19. And there are men in there that are as old as 85. And everything in between. And it's so wonderful to see that mixture. I mean, the, 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 some of the older gentlemen in there, they share their wisdom and their experiences, and they've got great stories for us to learn from. But then we got the younger guys in there, and they remind us of what it's like to be young and want to grab the world by the tail and see if you can change it. And to, and to hear the trials sometimes of a newlywed to remind us what it was like and to see the proud smile of a new dad. I mean, there's just nothing else like it. And it's great for all of us. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, Wednesday's a work day, and I'm, I'm, I'm just tired. Time out. Time out. If that's the hang-up, you're missing the whole point. If the problem is you're too tired, you know what? Just stick on the JV team a little bit longer. Just stay there. When you're ready to step up to varsity, we'll be glad to have you. But until then, you know, two days are too much for you, then just stay at home and sit in your lazy boy. Because I want to challenge the men, not the JV team, the men, to be the fathers and the husbands and the spiritual leaders that God has called us to be. Currently in the men's fraternity, we're doing a study called Disciplines of a Godly Man. We're just covering all kinds of subjects. That'll last the whole year. This series, it'll be over in two weeks. I urge you, join us on Wednesday night. I've discovered that men want to be challenged, and they need each other for that. Back to Joshua. One of the things that I love about Joshua, and Daniel's another one of my favorite characters, is that he was committed for life. We get to Joshua chapter 24, and Joshua's like probably, well, Scripture tells me he's 110 years old now. And for his entire life, he's lived for God. He started out as a slave in Egypt, and then he became a warrior, and then he became the commander-in-chief, and then he became the ruler of the nation. And he's followed God that whole time. He's been committed that whole time. And then we read in Joshua 24, Joshua says this. 
Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. So you didn't have much time left, right? It's the two-minute warning. It's like he's saying, boys, take a knee. Let me say something to you. He says, you need to get rid of those gods that you brought from other places. It's time to get rid of that and be all in. It's like if he was talking to us. Hey, you can't just live for Jesus on Sunday morning and do whatever you want during the week. You need to get rid of that. Just stop doing it. That's what he's telling them. It's time to grow up. It's time to put yourself on the line. Serve the Lord your God with all your heart and commit yourself. And I love what he says. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the call, men, is this. To commit yourself wholeheartedly to pursuing him. And I'm not perfected this. I'm not, I'm not up here like I'm the perfect example. I'm not, I'm not Joshua at the end of his life saying, look, I've accomplished all these things following my footsteps. I'm, that's not me. I fail. I, I mess up. I'm on this journey with you. There are days I struggle more than others. But for all of us, choose this day who you will serve. Be men of strength and courage and commitment. I'll close with this. A century ago, a band of brave souls became known as one-way missionaries. They bought their tickets to the mission field without a return fare. In other words, they weren't coming back. Instead of packing suitcases, they packed their coffins. They sailed out of port and they waved goodbye to everyone they knew and everything they knew. And they knew that they would never see those people again. A.W. Milne was one of those missionaries, and he set sail for some islands in the South Pacific, knowing full well that every other missionary that had ever gone there, the headhunters had taken their lives. He did not fear for his life because he had already died to himself. His coffin was already packed. For 35 years, he ministered to those tribes. When he died, tribe members buried him in the middle of their village and inscribed this epitaph on his tombstone. When he came here, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. When do we start believing that God wants us to just be safe and go to safe places to do easy things? That playing safe is safe. Jesus didn't die to keep us safe. He died to make us dangerous. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. Faithfulness is storming the gates of hell. Doing God's will is not an insurance plan. It's a daring plan. Surrendering to God shouldn't be considered radical. It should be considered normal. 
We don't need to live. In fact, it's time to quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Strength, courage, commitment. Would you pray with me?